Well, good morning, and if you've not already done so, I would like to invite you to join me in Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, which will be a little bit easier to find than Haggai. I told Brian earlier this week that I keep going back and forth last week find, to find Haggai, since there's only two chapters in there. Uh, I would go before it, and then I would go after that. And as you're making your way there, uh, I want to say once again, what a delight it is to see you here today, and what a blessing it is that we have this wonderful privilege to gather together as the Lord's people. Uh, us being here is no small matter. It's not an easy thing when you think about all the things that happen that would easily prevent the Lord's people gathering together for the worship of Him. God has you here today because He intends to receive worship. And He intends to receive this worship from your lips and from your heart. And with that in view, I want you to worship with me as we read Zechariah chapter 12. Hear this burden or oracle from the living God. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of Judah will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, 
and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Thus saith the Lord. Let's join our hearts together in prayer and ask for his assistance. Father, we readily admit that this is a lot to take in. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you say about yourself in your word. We pray that you would cause us to be as enthralled with your glory as you are with your glory, as you deserve. We ask this in Christ's strong and mighty name. Amen. Well, Zechariah is the longest of the 12 minor prophets. And Zechariah is a contemporary with Haggai. Pastor Brian preached last week. And both Zechariah and Haggai, along with 42,000 plus Jews, had just returned to Judah in order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Lord raised up these two prophetic voices, Haggai, who was uh, commissioned to encourage the people in the rebuilding of the temple, and then Zechariah, who just two months after Haggai had received and delivered his word from the Lord, to encourage the people toward spiritual renewal by calling them to repentance. Zechariah, right out of the gate in chapter 1, commands them on the authority of God to return to the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce described these two complementary prophets in this way. The burden of Haggai's book is that the temple of God must be rebuilt, and God will make it glorious. In speaking of this great but future glory, Haggai pointed forward to, but he did not elaborate on the messianic age. God would be with his people as they began to rebuild the temple. Zechariah, perhaps aware that not all of the people were sincere in following the Lord, focused his message to them on repenting from their sin and returning to God with all their hearts. Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. Well, what is it that God has remembered? God has remembered his people. You might recall that God had promised to restore his people following their Babylonian captivity. In this uh, short prophecy that is 14 chapters long, there are eight visions and two oracles. The eight visions that are given are in the first nine chapters of Zechariah, and Pastor Mark Dever summarizes these by saying it's a picture of the whole world at peace under the rule of God's anointed priest and king. Chapters 9 through 11 are the first oracle dealing with Israel being established as a people. And then chapter 12 through 14 is the second oracle, dealing with Israel being sifted or purged as the very people of God. So for the Christian today, how do we put all of this together? For the Christian today, it matters more. It's more important for us to be a people of God, to be the people of God, than it is for us to be an established and powerful nation. According to Zechariah, which has very prominent words for us in this day, in, in the times in which we live, citizenship in the kingdom of God demands, it's predicated upon your repentance, turning from self and all worldly, earthly, fleshly allegiances and turning to Jesus Christ. 
This prophecy that Zechariah is given is post-exilic, meaning they're no longer under the Babylonian captivity, but they are still under Persian influence. So you can imagine that among several things that they're trying to figure out is perhaps most prominent, who are we as the people of God? Zechariah, if you've been tracking along with us in the uh, Sweeter Than Honey Bible reading plan, or if you've uh, tried to acquaint yourself with it in this week, Zechariah is the kind of book that perhaps a lot of people are uh, tempted to steer clear from. There's a lot that's going on that we don't, we simply don't understand. It's hard to put it together. And why is this something that's good for us? I know for one that I'm, I'm somebody that values simplicity. I like easy things to understand. I like nice, tight definitions for stuff. But when we come across a prophecy like Zechariah, our minds are stretched, being expanded because we're trying to grasp at the very thing that is incomprehensible. In short, the glory of God is not going to be confined or boxed in to our neat and tight definitions. God is inexhaustible. Psalm 143 says, His greatness is unsearchable. He is transcendent, yet he is also imminent, meaning he's near to his people. And he is near because he chooses to reveal himself to his people. There's more to the eternal God than our finite minds are able to grasp and comprehend. So I want to encourage us, worship as you read Zechariah. Worship, as you read, even when your understanding is not precisely clear, roll up your sleeves and get to work to understand what God is saying in this precious text. Our outline is going to follow this today. Number one, the living word of the sovereign God. Second, we'll look at in that day, what does the sovereign God or what the sovereign God will do? And lastly, in that day, what the sovereign God will provide. So first of all, verse 1, the living word of the sovereign God. It begins with the burden or the oracles of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. God has a message for his people. The word oracle means pronouncement or proclamation. These are the living words of the living God. It's not just black and white words that we see on a sheet of paper here. These are the living words of the living God. And this, the oracles of God, set apart the people of God as they were the only ones to receive these oracles. One author said, the theological significance of the oracles are that they are divinely authoritative communications before which men stand in awe and to which they should bow in humility. This is the final, as I mentioned earlier, of the two oracles from Zechariah's ministry. And as the Lord begins to share his burden for Israel, he begins by recounting who he is by answering the following questions. Who is the one qualifying this message to Israel? Or to, yeah, to Israel? And on what authority is this message being provided? Is there someone else who can deliver a message such as this? Who is he? He's the Lord who stretches 
the heavens, who forms the foundation of the earth, who, or who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the spirit within man. When people speak, we listen. When God speaks, we obey. Doesn't this read like the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. These are the living words from the sovereign God. Secondly, in that day. It's probably a phrase that you picked up, even if this is the first time you've ever looked at this prophecy. It seems like that phrase, in that day, was repeated throughout. And that's correct. In that day is likely a reference to the day of the Lord, which begs the question, what's going to happen? What is happening in that day? Zechariah provides several metaphors to help us understand what the living God, what the sovereign God is doing. Jerusalem and Judah are going to be like a cup of staggering to the surrounding nations. It will be as though, these surrounding nations, it will be as though they have no effect against the people of Jerusalem or Judah. Nations will find themselves physically inept against them because God is standing in their defense. In verse 3, the Lord says, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, such that whoever tries to lift it will be severely injured. All the nations will be gathered against it. What's happening here? Well, what he's teaching is at least this. To go against the Lord's people is in essence to do battle against the Lord himself, which is pointless. It's fruitless. There's no vulnerability that's there. A few weeks ago, when we were uh, was in the uh, grocery store with my son Blake, and we went down one of the aisles, and he and I were just wrestling around a little bit. Well, I thought we were done wrestling. I reached down to go grab uh, a case of water. Well, he sees the opportunity when I turned my back, and he came running at me and pushed. And when he pushed, I went tumbling over into the cases of water that are there. And he found a, a moment of vulnerability. He found a moment of weakness, and he sees the opportunity. But with Jerusalem, there is no points of weakness. There is no vulnerability that's there. Not because they're not weak people, it's because God is the one who is protecting them. Catch this from Zechariah chapter 2. Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it, okay? Jerusalem without walls. Listen to what the Lord declares. He will be a wall of fire around her. And he will be their glory in their midst. Verse 4, God says, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. This is a picture of mass confusion, utter chaos to everyone who is involved, except God, who is stated, he keeps watch over his people. Verse 6, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot and flaming torch. This metaphor may be a bit easier to visually grasp with the recent wildfires that are happening in California. 
everything or every yeah, everything who touches them will be scorched. Yet God says he will save the tents of Judah. Verse 8, what is the Lord doing? He will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is perhaps the most striking metaphor in this entire exchange. The Lord will defend his people in such a way that the weakest or the most feeble inhabitant will be like David, the warrior king. This is remarkable. For there are no weak links in God when he defends his people who are weak. This is why Paul says, I can delight all the more in my weakness because his power is made perfect in my weakness. Loved one, it's okay that you're weak because God's power is in us and through us makes us to be strong warrior in battle. He is our strength. He is our stronghold. He is our refuge. He is our rock. He is our hope. In verse 9, perhaps the punctuation mark in everything is when God says, I will destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. This is not, it sounds like already there's a lot that God is doing and standing in defense for his people, but this is not everything that he does for them. To stop here, should I hear me on this, to stop here would be similar to Christ only rising from the dead following his crucifixion and death. His protects the people. He protects his people so that he can pour out his spirit upon his people. This is where I think people often misunderstand eternal life. They want protection, but they don't want life everlasting. They want to be shielded from the assail of the enemy, but they don't want to stop sinning. You see, God stands in our spot in battle to defend. He is, as Exodus describes in Exodus 14, the the Lord is a warrior who fights for us so that we can have life by yielding to his loving rule in his kingdom. God knows his people's need more than just simply his protection from other enemies. We need someone whom we pierced to deliver us from us. Otherwise, we should expect nothing to be able to protect us from the wrath of God. We too, like those fighting against Jerusalem and Judah, would be eternally destroyed if the Lord does not do verse 10, which brings us to our third point. In that day, what the sovereign God will provide. Verse 10, I will pour out. God will pour out on his people who have been sifted, purged, and now identified through this war a spirit of grace and supplication, such that they will look on him whom they have pierced. But can God be pierced? He can if he takes on human flesh. He can if he comes to take the very nature of a servant. He can if he humbles himself. What a majestic verse in this Advent season. God incarnate pierced for our transgressions so that he can receive all the glory as Emmanuel, God with us, who will save his people from our sins. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Take heart, beloved. The one who gave the word 
Remember verse 1. The one gave the word is the one who has stretched out the heavens. He is the one who's laid the foundations of the earth. He is the one who has formed the spirit within our inner being. He knows what to pour out upon its people. And the very spirit who indwells the believer is receiving grace and supplication. The sovereign of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, who is a father to his people, is pouring out grace and supplication upon you. This is how our inner man gets fed. Grace and supplication are the inner man's nutrients through which we are fed, we are kept, and we are sustained. What will the sovereign God provide? There will be great mourning in Jerusalem. When the spirit of grace and supplication is poured out, it will bring about your repentance. And the evidence that you are a recipient of this grace and supplication is that you will mourn with godly sorrow over your sin. Reminding once again, this is where Zechariah began his ministry in chapter 1. How he continues his ministry in the first oracle in chapters 9 through 11. The close of chapter 11 has such colorful language for the shepherd who does not care for the flock. Well, how do you return to him? You return to him through repentance. Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced, is the door through which we enter into the kingdom of God. Repentance and faith are what's required and what will be shown as we are given access into the kingdom of God. Church, you might recall our catechism questions. Number 78, kids, what is it to repent? You remember the answer? Repentance involves what? Sorrow for sin, leading us to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. Those who loved Jesus, when he was crucified, mourned his death. We are those who live on this side of the, re of the resurrection. We no longer mourn his death. We now share in his suffering. I wish I could pick this up more, but let me give you Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And one more, Philippians. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Grace Church, this is love. Why is this good news? Because God's made it possible for you to look on him whom you pierced. He makes it possible because he is the one who is pursuing after you. It's like that game of tag that all kids love to play. But instead of you being frozen or instead of you being it, God runs you down in order to free you. He upholds you as he is sifting or purging you. The love that you experience in this moment is not only love for this moment. It's a love from eternity past. And it's a love that's present for you right now. And it's a love that is available for you in the future. Only an eternal king can give his ransomed subjects such a complete redemption. How captivated are you with the perfect display and demonstration of God? He is eternally perfect and he manifests himself in perfection. He acts with providentially perfect precision. God is never imbalanced. He's not like us. In that day, God is simultaneously acting with each of his glorious attributes on display in perfect unity 
For him to exercise justice is not to the exclusion of his holiness, his righteousness, or his love, nor is he favoring benevolence over justice when he loves. I am who I am is he who is what he is. I am who I am is he who is what he is. Look on him whom you pierced as the one who was pierced for you. Bewildered afresh that Christ would accept being our sin offering. That's why it's not easy for us to just gather here on Sundays. Perhaps similar to what I was facing the moments I'm walking up, I'm just reminded again and again what a sinner I am. God is right now in this moment simultaneously at work for his glory, whether it's in mercy or whether it's in judgment. He is simultaneously at work right now for your good, whether that is hardship or prosperity, both of which is for the flourishing of your soul. There is hope for us in Christ because God is the same God in that day, in this day, and in the day to come. So yes, you can be overcome with grief and heaviness when you lose a job. You can be overcome with grief and heaviness as you wait for lungs, as you suffer the loss of life, as you struggle in parenthood, as you struggle with singleness, as you suffer in health, as you patiently endured being sinned against because Zechariah 12 is a picture of what the eternal king does for those who have pierced him. He returns it by pouring out grace and supplication. Look on him whom you have pierced, but don't stop there. Look on him whom you pierced as the one pierced for you, but don't stop there. Look on him whom you pierced as the one pierced for you so that you can continue to look upon him. And this is where too many people stop short. They're happily content with a Jesus who will die for their sins so that they can have heaven. This is anti-gospel and it's antagonistic against the teaching of the Bible. It's a very offense to God and it's deserving of eternal damnation. Why? Because a Jesus who saves for heaven is not the same Jesus sent from God as the, same person of the, as the second person of the Trinity as the one who came to save his people from their sins, as the one who said now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, as the one whom Isaiah speaks of, as the same Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Look on him as whom you have pierced, as the one pierced for you so that you can continue to look on him. Continue to look on him does not save you, but it is one of the ways that God assures your heart that you are his. How? You see your sin. By looking on him whom you pierced. You see that Christ and Christ alone can cover, forgive, and remove your sin. Because you look on him whom you pierced as the one pierced for you. And you love him because he first loved you. Because you look on him whom you have pierced as the one pierced for you. So that you can continue to look upon him. I don't know how else to say it any better than what's been said, and I'd be a fool to try to. Listen to the word of the living God concerning you, and rest assured that if you're looking on him whom you have pierced, this God is for you. He's for you in eternity past. He's for you right now, and he's for you in the day to come. Let's pray.